Hello, hello. Good to see each one of you this evening. Glad you've joined us as we've uh, continued to journey through the Bible tonight in the book of Galatians chapter 5. So welcome all of you that are watching online. Thank you for joining us tonight as well as we've gathered here. Well, tonight as we prepare to worship, I want to remind you of who we're worshiping, the God that we worship from Isaiah chapter 40. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. This magnificent God who created this world is the one that we are worshiping tonight. So as we worship him and sing this evening through the different songs, keep that in mind because everything we're doing this evening is worshiping him. As we sing, as we study the word together, we're worshiping this incredible, infinite God who loves us deeply and is here with us tonight. Let's stand and worship our everlasting God. Rises, we wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Our God, you reign forever. Our hope, our strong Oh, 
God, we thank you that you, the creator of the universe, are so interested in every minute detail of our lives, how you love us, how you bless us, how you guide us. We worship you this evening, and we are thankful people. And as we come into your holy presence this evening, we worship you as a magnificent God.
those words sink in deep into your heart. for each one of us. He's the one upon us declaring Jesus as Lord. Put His Spirit inside of us so that we would have the ability and the help to live as He's asked us to live and as we're even going to look tonight in Galatians 5. The great thing is, is that takes and his work begins on the inside of us and he changes us from the inside out and makes us look like our savior jesus christ a thousand times i failed still your mercy remains and should i stumble again Still I'm caught in your grace everlasting. Your light will shine when all else fades, never ending. Your glory goes beyond all fame.
my heart and my soul. I give you control. Consume me from the inside out, Lord. Let justice and praise become my embrace. To love you from the inside out and everlasting, your light will shine with all else fades, never ending. Your glory goes beyond all fame, and the cry of my heart is to bring you praise from the inside out, Lord, my soul. Cries out from the inside out, Lord, my soul cries out. Lord, that's our prayer this evening. We give you our hearts and our lives this evening. We turn our ear attentive to your word tonight change us as you see fit in Jesus name amen you may be seated well if you would open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5 as we continue our study and do this couple of other things that I think that uh, is important for you to to know about I may have faded out when Tom was doing announcements, but did you announce? Did where did he go? <laughs> did you did you announce the uh, auction for the Christian school? I did not. The auction for the Christian school is actually online right now, but you don't do it during the Bible study. <laughs> It'll go on, I think, until Saturday. But we want to encourage you to support the Christian school. The auction is also Saturday. Uh, from five on, and I'm not sure if there's tickets available, but you can check with the, the school. Also, um, we have some more, uh, we, we want to remind you of the Israel trip. We've got about 20 people that, that are all plugged in and going. And then the other, yay God, that we had, we had our, our VBS launch meeting for everybody last night, and I think we were, what, 52 or something like that people. Um, but then Rachel told me that I think we're upwards of 70 volunteers now that are on the, on, on the roster, which is awesome and scary because that means that if we've got this many volunteers, how many more kids are we going to have? There are 50 kids already signed up for Vacation Bible School, which is super cool. So we are planning for 350 kids. We had about 300 last year, so we want to encourage you to get, get plugged in. There's a couple of teaching spots that we still have available for that. So tonight we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> and so as we move through, Paul is writing to the church here in, in Galatia and encouraging them uh, in their spiritual journey. Paul, in writing Galatians, and you can kind of outline it into, into three sections, he's got the... In chapters 1 and 2, he kind of defends himself, and then he gets into the theological in 3 and 4. And then 5 and 6 is really entering into the practical side of his letter to Galatians. The key passage, I think, that, that really for us tonight is in Galatians 5.25. And it says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. 
And we look at that and we say, well, if we live, does that sound conditional? Well, yeah, it does kind of sound conditional, but that's not really, in the original language, it really doesn't apply to that. It says, if we've been made alive by the Spirit of God, hence being born again, then we should conduct our lives according to that same Spirit of God. The problem is, much like the Galatians, we're pretty good out of the gate. We're, we're pretty good at starting things, but maintaining it over a period of time, eh, we kind of slide back, don't we? And we have these kind of cycles where it's like, yeah, we're doing really good, and then we got squirrel, distraction, life, feelings, emotions, and all these other things that get in the way, and then we start shifting into cruise. And I don't really, you know, I really don't need to read as much. I really don't need to pray as much. I really don't have to fellowship as much, go to church as much. And I really like to do this or that or the other within this. And so Paul, in concluding this letter, is writing to a group of people that are Gentiles that have come to faith. And there's Judaizers that are coming in behind him that are saying, hey, look, at you know, Paul's... Paul's a good guy, and he's got the gospel message and all that, but he's really not telling you everything. If you really want to be spiritual, then you've got to abide by the Mosaic Law. You really need to be circumcised, and you need to observe all of the laws that are within this. And so the Galatians would hear this, and they would say, well, you know, it's much easier to be religious and check the boxes than to be in relationship with God and actually have a, have a relationship with God. Where you can check the boxes and feel good about yourself. And that's what religion is. Religion is man's way to try to appear to be holy to God. Check the boxes. I went to church. Check. I tithe. Check. I gave to the poor. Check. I helped the old lady unpack her, her uh, groceries into her car. There's my good deeds. Check in all of these different things. Well, the problem is that's not what God's called us to do. We've been born again by the Spirit of God to be in relationship with God within that. And we should live in a, in a manner that is faith alone because that's what saved us. We're not saved by works. And so that becomes the challenge with that. Paul is going to venture into this this challenge now, as he's been pushing back against the legalism, which is one side of the pendulum, the other side of that pendulum swing is Christian liberties and freedoms. Well, Paul, if I don't have to obey, be under the law, then I'm free to do whatever I want to do. Is that true? No. And so he needs to, he needs to educate them on this. So let's take a look at Galatians 5. And as he introduces this topic of spiritual freedom, verses 1 through 12, he says this, it, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no effect to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. Now, you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, 
are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? And then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves, which is a powerful passage. Wait for it because it's tough. So he starts out with verse 1 and he talks about freedom. Now, who is the foundation of our freedom? It's Jesus. The completed work at the cross. Jesus is the foundation of our freedom. And he says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. When Jesus came and died on the cross, he came to... To set us free. One commentator wrote it this way. Plant your feet firmly, therefore, within the freedom that Christ has won for us. And do not let yourself be caught again in the shackles of slavery. In other words, be planted in Christian liberty because Jesus has set you free. And don't get caught again under legalism or, or, or religiosity or this idea that somehow works is going to save you or if works is going to keep you saved. Because, see, then you're going to have to live your life checking boxes, aren't you? Did I do enough? Did, was I good enough? Did I fulfill this? And, and so for believers, we need to fight to maintain freedom because it's our tendency to fall back into religion and into works and into production. And, and there's a lot of things that want to slave us other than just even religion. What are some things that want to enslave you again? How about your flesh? Does the flesh want to enslave you again? Sure. Flesh wants it what it wants when it wants it. How about the world system? Does the world system want to enslave you again? Sure, be conformed to the world. Think like what we think. Do what we do. Everybody is thinking this way. Therefore, you need to conform to our ideology. Is that going on in our world today? For sure it is. People are writing this narrative and says, Christian, fall in line with the narrative of the world. What about sin? Personal sin. Does personal sin want to enslave you? Is there anybody here that wrestles with sin? Yeah. Wants to entangle me. And if, if you think you're above it, then go ahead and read Romans 7 and look at what Paul did. Here's a guy who struggled with it. Why? Because we're in this tension. We are, we are people that are born again in the Spirit of God, but that we're also stuck in this body of flesh. And Paul's going to deal with this in this chapter. So if you find yourself tonight wrestling between the flesh that wants to enslave you and your spirit that wants to be free and you're in this, this tension and you don't do the things that you should do and you do the things that you shouldn't do and you run around with guilt because you don't think you're doing the things the right way, well, who's going to save you from all of that? And his name is Jesus who sets the foundation for freedom because Jesus, first of all, has set you free from the law. 
This religious legalism was coming back in to these people who were free. Mind you, they're Gentiles. They're not bound by the Abrahamic covenant, nor are they bound by the Mosaic law. And there was people coming in and saying, well, you've got to fit into our mold. And, and if you don't, then you're not really a good Christian within that. And they started playing this guilt. And, so they were, and, and the one thing that they were using for that was circumcision. But Jesus had set you free from the law because he paid the penalty for the law. You're saved by grace, through faith, not of works. And as a free believer that has been set free from the condemnation of the law, Paul says, live as you are. What does that mean? Live in the Christian liberty that God has afforded to you through Jesus and the cross. Live free. With no condemnation, with no, no structure that binds you to some religious system or legalism. Legalism is a shackle. What does legalism look like? Legalism looks like all the things that you can't do. In addition to all the things that you have to do to fit this mold within this. But Jesus died and, and paid that price. Galatians 1.4, Paul says it, who gave himself for our sins so that, now there's that henna clause that I've taught you about, purpose clause, so that he might rescue us from sin, or from this present evil age, according to the will of our Father and God. So you've been rescued. You've been set free within that. And so your Christian liberty is grounded in the completed work of Jesus. You're free. You are free, not bound unto, unto these laws or to the world or the power of this world. You are free to live by the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells in you. You're free. And, and within this, we have to be careful, though, that we don't take that, that concept of Christian liberty to the extreme. Question. Are you free to do whatever you want to do? Are you free to believe whatever you want to believe? Live whatever way you want to live? No. Keep in mind, Christian liberty is grounded in the basis of being free from the law that condemns, but free to live in Christ, unhindered, unshackled. You are... are, in that place where you can live in this freedom, but you can never, ever, ever live in that freedom. If you are born again by the Spirit, you are never licensed to live in a freedom in a manner that grieves the Holy Spirit. Do you follow? I can never live in a manner that is inconsistent with the righteousness of Christ, with the Holy Spirit, based on how God defines righteousness, not how religion defines righteousness. Because remember, the Judaizers are saying, if you're righteous, you're circumcised, Mosaic law. No, we live according to the righteousness that's established by Jesus. And he gives us his righteousness, so we stay within that lane that's there. And and we're going to take a look in a bit. We're going to see the, the fruit of that spirit. The fruit of the spirit is freedom. It's freedom to do this, to love. And to live in peace and to display this, this endurance and this patience in this world. 
Freedom doesn't give you a license for immorality or idolatry, does it? I'm a Christian, I'm free, I can love whoever I want the way I want to. No. Does, does that freedom give you the license for idolatry? I can worship whoever I want. No, it doesn't. In whatever way I want? No. Does that, does that freedom give you license to believe whatever truth you want to believe? I have heard from so many people about Christian liberty that I can, I can choose whatever version of, of, of doctrinal truth that I want out of the Bible. Is that true? No. Truth is truth. And you don't get to, you don't get to as Paul's going to in a bit, you don't get to add to truth because the minute that you add human understanding, social standards, the world standards or sin to truth, it no longer becomes truth. It's corrupted. And so we've got to be very careful that we don't, that we don't use our freedom to remove the boundaries you're not freedom from, you're freedom to. You're freedom to, to do things. In verses 2 through 6, he cautions the Galatians. He says, now I, I caution you, in your freedom, don't fall from grace. You've been saved by grace. And so within this, in verse 2, he says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you, if you receive circumcision of Christ, you will, it will have no benefit to you. In other words, you're going to do it. It's, it's, it's no good. But in this, he, he testifies that the one who receives circumcision is back under the law. Say, okay, I really feel that, in, in, that I need to be circumcised. Okay, great. You're willingly to put, putting yourself under circumcision, back under a law that never worked in the beginning. Fine, you want to live that way. If you want to live under legalism, when, which doesn't work, you're free to do that. But if you make that covenant with legalism, then you've got to be bound to it. You have to be bound to these laws. But what you're doing is you're saying, the death of Jesus has no effect in my life. Think about that. If I revert to salvation by works, what I'm saying is that Jesus died on the cross for no reason for me. There's no benefit in Jesus dying on the cross for me. Because I'm leaving the cross, and I'm leaving the benefit of the cross, and I'm going back to works. You understand Paul's argument. If you do this, if you go back to legalism, you're making the making the work of Christ of none effect. And the Judaizers were trying to trap them into an old faith system, faith system, to entangle them again under the laws, the rules, eat, don't eat, all of the the holy days that you have to observe, and all of these things, including circumcision. And within that, and the cross doesn't mean anything for that. And when you go back to legalism, you lose the blessing of grace. You, look the, you lose the blessing of the gift. And, and, and that's so sad when people lose this, this blessing of, of love and grace and mercy and freedom. And they go back to guilt and condemnation. Because you're always trying to measure up and you never seem to measure up. And you're like, man, I'm just a failure. But under the cross, no, you're, you're a victor. Under the law, you're never going to make it. 
in Acts chapter 15, verses 10 through 5, I'm sorry, 15, 10 through 11 says this. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they are also? Acts 15, Bible scholars. Who was having that conversation? The elders in Jerusalem as Paul and Barnabas would come back and talk with James. And the elders in Jerusalem were saying, we're hearing that the Gentiles are being saved. We need them to obey the law. See, this is something that they had to wrestle with in their conversion. Because they were Jews and they always had the law. Paul's like, no, these Gentiles are getting saved, and why are you putting a burden on their neck that our, our heritage couldn't even handle? So they agreed. Then let's do this. We're not going to make them all be circumcised. Let's just do some reasonable things. Don't, no fornication. Well, that's sexual immorality. Stay out of that. Okay, we can, we can ask the Gentiles to do that. And, and no meat offered to, to, to idols because, you know, our Jewish brothers, they don't like that, so that's, that's okay, we'll stay out of that. Or anything strangled that still has the blood in it. We can agree to that. Why? Because that's relational. That's in that social. Paul was concerned, though, that these Galatians were abandoning this gospel message for legalism. And this legalism, and I can tell you this, legalism separates you from the grace of God. Have you ever met a legalist? Yeah, and there's variations of them. There are those that would be so legalistic that would say, okay, if you come to church, you've got to wear a suit and a tie. Women have to wear dresses, no makeup, and all of this. And then, you know, it could be only a certain way, and you have to come on the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, that you can't do anything else. You go to church, you go home, and that's it. And you have to abide by all these rules. If, if, if you're saved by grace and you want to do that, that's fine, but... That's not going to save you. There's no joy in that. But then the libertarian would say, hey, I can do whatever I want to do. I don't even have to go to church. Yeah. That's a dork fish right there. But, but we look at them, and, and by these Galatians reverting back, they were literally, as the term Paul uses, they were falling out of grace into legalism. We are in a condition of grace. Do you realize that there isn't anything that you could ever do that would make God love you any more than He already does? And there isn't anything that you can do that you can add to your salvation. It's a gift of grace that God's given to you. Righteousness cannot be achieved by works. Romans 3, 10-12 says, As it's written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is no not one. That's why Jesus had to come. Because we couldn't find our way. Martin Luther says this. In his commentary of this passage, he says this. You are no longer in the realm of grace. Falling from grace. You are no longer, and I love the statement, you are no longer in the realm of grace. When we think of a realm, what is it? That's a governess. When you move away from, from grace into legalism, legal, legalism is governing you. 
We need to stay in the governance of grace within this. And, and legalism cuts you off. You can't live in both worlds. Now again, Paul is not saying, big caution, Paul is not saying to the believer that if you, as a believer, you fall from grace into legalism, you lose your salvation. That is not what he's saying. What he's saying is in your practice, you are in practice making the grace of God of no effect in your life. You follow? It's not that I'm losing my salvation, but what I'm losing is the joy of my salvation because I'm falling back under legalism and placing these burdens upon myself. Paul is trying to tell them, that's not necessary. Don't do that. You're not going to like it. You're, you're already there. It's by faith that believers are experiencing the righteousness of God. And as a true Christian, you're going to live by, by faith in a grace-filled life until that day you get to see Jesus within that. It, and it experiences this spirit awaiting in grace and realizing the hope. Now, it's super cool because I want you to think about this. If you're living under the realm of grace, right? No legalism, no guilt. And, and the greatest thing you're wrestling with is this flesh and the influence but you're, you're pushing back against it, then the translation, when you go to see the Lord, it's going to be grace upon grace. I'm graced by the power of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. And then when I leave this place and shed this, this, this place that I'm in, then I'm going to see more grace because then I'm going to see God and I'm going to see Jesus and I'm going to be in His presence and it's going to be awesome within that. Now, Again, what's the main thing? Is it Christian liberty or is it legalism? Neither. Neither, really. What is it really? It is that faith that is expressed through love. Verse 6. For Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision. Paul basically says, look it. In Christ, it's not about your religion. It's how that religion or that relationship is expressed. Because at the end of the day, what happens to this body? Where does it go? It's worm food. It goes away. Right? Worm food. Whether you go in a casket or you go in a crematorium. In 30 seconds, it does what 30 years is going to happen. But it's done. Goes away. Okay, great. So I go get circumcised in this body. Do you think God's going to have a check station when you get to heaven? No. No. But what he's going to look at is how that faith is expressed. As he says in verse 6, he says this, but faith working through love. Faith working through love. And if that faith is based on grace, then love can be expressed unconditionally. If faith is based on the law, the law always makes conditions, right? I will love you based on the conditions or the legalism, if you match the legalism, that, that, the legal standard. But if I love you because I've experienced grace and you're under the grace of God, then you give grace. And it's love that is unconditional within this. God is not interested in 
in your denominational declarations. He is not going to have a lineup or different gates and say, okay, I want the Baptists there, I want the Methodists there, and I want the, the Lutherans there, and the non-denoms, they're over there. He's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. He's going to, he's going to look and see, what did you do with my son Jesus? He's going to look at your life. And when we sit before the Bema Seat of God and He is ready to reward us, and He will, when we sit before there, He's not going to look at your church attendance or your tithing records. He's going to look at how you loved through faith. He's going to look at how that faith, and literally it reads, the faith that's expressed through love. That's the mark of the Christian. And... and the Judaizers were saying, well, you're of the circumcised and you're of the uncircumcised. We see that today. Well, I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. I'm a non-denom. And it's absolutely nothing. You know what it should be? I'm a lover of Jesus saved by grace. That's it. I'm a lover of Jesus saved by grace. And not getting all hung up in these things. It's interesting, in this section, Paul uses the, the triad of a, a believer's DNA, and he uses faith, hope, and love, which is what really defines what a Christ follower is. You want a definition? How's your faith? How's your hope? How's your love? And the greatest of these we know based on 1 Corinthians 13 is what? Love. So then he warns them, verses 7 to 12, okay, all right, be careful. Be careful you don't stumble. He's warning them. You could hear, oh, Paul, he's, he's writing to these guys. And he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion didn't come from him who calls you. And so Paul often uses these sports analogies. This is an analogy of a marathon runner. So imagine this guy, he's running a marathon. You were running well. Who jumped out of the crowd and stuck their leg out in front of you? You were running well. Who came alongside you and got in front of you and slowed you down? Who hindered you within this? You were running well, but you need to understand that you need to run this race with everything you got. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that those who run the race all run, but the one only one receives the prize? Run in such a way... That you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we're imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating an air. But I discipline my body and make it a slave. So that, after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. If you're running a race, do you want to run to be last? No. In our culture, we got this weird, like, Barney idea. Everybody gets a participation trophy. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. We want to run to win. And that's not just to participate. We want to be first. We want to cross that line first. We want to go well and lay it all out there within that. And Paul's challenging them, and he's writing to a culture that winning was everything. 
And, and we need to understand we need to, to run that way and, and run in such a way we're not disqualified. And if you fall back or fall from grace, well, then you're going to stumble along the way. It's going to slow you down. The burden of legalism is going to weigh you down. And so within this, it's a challenge. Paul uses this word, he says, who hindered you? And I thought, well, I, I've seen that before. And it's in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. It says this, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet, note, Satan hindered us. And I thought, who's really behind the Judaizers in hindering the Gentiles? Satan. Who's really behind the legalist that wants to add the burden and guilt and shame upon the person and make it so that they don't feel like they measure up? Satan. Who hindered you when you were running so well? Satan. Satan. He's tripping you up. He's getting in your way. He's slowing you down. He's getting your head spun up in an area that you don't need to be thinking about. And what were they doing? They were adding to the gospel. He said, this persuasion didn't come from him who calls you. You're getting in some other place. And then he uses a baking analogy. In verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Adding to the gospel rules and regulations is adding something that God never intended. If God wanted rules and regulations to go with the gospel, do you think God would have added it with Jesus? But he didn't. We don't find it being added that way. It entangles the, the runner. And adding the gospel really is abandoning the truth. What is the truth? That we're sinners. The truth is, our sin separates us from God. And because our sin separates us from God, God sent His Son to pay the penalty for that sin. And if you believe in Him as your Lord and Savior, that penalty for the sin is paid for at the cross. And we're adopted as His kids. And we're given an inheritance and a relationship with Him. And it's not based on anything that we do. It's interesting, they were, they were abandoning the purity of the truth of the gospel, contaminating the gospel. And, and it was a different gospel than what they had heard. And with this, there's this word persuasion. Who persuaded you? So I looked at this idea of persuasion, and it really means adding a passive thought that actively affects a person's actions. Persuasion. I'm, adding, I'm passively adding a thought that actively changes your actions. How do we know that? Genesis 3. Satan came to the woman and said what? Did God really say? Came to the woman and said... God really doesn't want you to be all-knowing like Him. Believing in Jesus as your Lord and Savior by faith alone and receiving it by grace alone, it can't be that simple. Do you hear the line? 
Let's add to it. Let's add to it. And it causes, through a process of convincing, one to believe something that is not true. To get you to believe something that's not true. Satan doesn't come right out with a big, bold sign. It's this little passive voice that just speaks and speaks and wears you down. There's a lot of deceptions in this world where believers are being persuaded to believe false truths, aren't there? A lot of things in this world, in the world system, are trying to get you to believe alternative thoughts. I I can't even validate it as truths within this. Some of these things might even be in relation. Your spouse doesn't really love you. They really don't care. God doesn't really care about you because if God really cared about you, you wouldn't be going through this. Do you hear all the voice? And it just speaks all of this stuff. And these are these deceptions. These demonic persuasions are hindering Christians all over the world today and causing believers to abandon the truth. And that's what they are, is they're demonic deceptions. Demonic delusions. That come in, that question God, question the truth. What should we do? Live in how you've been saved, born again, by grace. And believe the truth. Martin Luther called the devil this. A juggler with a thousand tricks, who is able to impress with such obvious lies that the heart would swear that the illusion becomes real. Satan is a juggler with a thousand tricks that with his illusions, he's capable of taking an obvious lie and get you to believe it's a truth. Do we see that in the world today? Absolutely. I had a conversation with somebody just the other night and was explaining to me how it is that there really are not two genders, but there's really a multifaceted group of genders. And was asked, well, what do you do about DNA? Well, I believe the DNA is still there, but it really is how you express And it's like, oh, my goodness challenges it and and juggles these things to get you to believe what is an absolute lie. It would be like going outside when the sky is blue and telling you it's red. It's red. No, it's blue. Oh, no, it's, it's really in your perception. It's really how the sky is presenting itself to you. And your interpretation of that sky is your interpretation. But my interpretation is my interpretation. So for me, this guy's red. And somewhere along the line, you'll become smart like me and believe that it's red also. But you see how the deceiver goes? And so Satan's method is, is really not to be openly deceptive, but to add the dash of deception. And so Paul says... A little bit of yeast 
put a little bit of yeast in the dough, and what happens? Sours the whole dough. Now, I like sourdough bread, but it kind of ruins the illustration for me. But you think about that. It's it, it, just like a rotten apple will spoil the whole barrel. Leaven was a symbol of corruption. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 3 through 8, where leaven was forbidden to be in the house during the time of Passover. You remember that? They go around in the beginning of Passover. What are they supposed to do? Clean the house of all the leaven. Get rid of all the leaven. Right? I wish it was that easy to get rid of sin. And when they do the Passover meal, they get the little dustpan and they go, okay, there goes the sin. But it was symbolic. Why? Because we want to get rid of it all. Anytime you compromise the truth and add anything secular to the Word of God, the Word of God becomes contaminated. And it no longer becomes truth. Whether it's a social gospel or a liberal gospel, moral relativism or spiritual pluralism. What's spiritual pluralism? I can be a heathen and a Christian at the same time. There's people that believe that. And so you look at that. So Paul hammers them. And he's been hammering them so far, saying, look, you can't do this. What you're doing is wrong. But then he brings a word of encouragement, a soft word in verse 10. He says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord. Notice the, the datives. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, not in what you're doing right now, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his own judgment. Have you ever talked with somebody and you're trying to have a conversation with them and you're trying to correct them and you use the phrase like, you know, I know you're better than this. I know you're better than what you've been doing. And it's a way to encourage them to lift them up out of their practice of what they're, what they're doing right now. I know you can do better than this and encourage them. And so he uses these positive words saying, I know you can do better. And those that are corrupting you, they're going to be judged. And they will. They're going to be judged harshly by God. Do you, can you imagine what that conversation in heaven is going to be like? Where, where these, these false teachers come in and have to stand before the throne room of God. The ones that are guilty of stumbling others in their faith through legalism. Within this, and these spiritual leaders. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 17, 1-2, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. But woe. What happens when there's a woe? Is that good or bad? Bad. Really bad. But woe, especially when Jesus says woe. But woe to him who, through whom they come. It would be better for him to have a millstone that were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Millstone. When we go to Israel next year, you're going to see millstones. What's the sea? The Sea of Galilee. For a Jew to be to drown, big deal. And you're not swimming with a millstone. You're, you're sinking. He said it'd be better for you to have that than to stand before God or to cause one of these people to stumble and God will judge them. So Paul addresses the lie that's circulating even about him. Verse 11 is interesting because Paul inserts this lie or this, this answer to a lie. He says, But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? And then stumbling block of the cross. And so what had gone on is there was the group of Judaizers that were going around saying, you should be circumcised 
Because Paul's teaching circumcision. Paul's a Jew, and he taught circumcision for years, and he's teaching circumcision for now. Well, did Paul have a, a person get circumcised? Yes, he did. Timothy. He had Timothy circumcised. He went to Timothy and said, Timothy, I think it's a good idea for you to be circumcised. You say, well, isn't that hypocritical? No. Timothy was half Jew, half Gentile. His mother was a Jew. His aunt was, his, uh, aunt was a Jew. And he was going in. So it would be totally appropriate for him, being half Jew, to worship as a Jew. But Titus, on the other hand, he said, no, Titus, don't get circumcised. And by not circumcising Titus and being with Titus in Jerusalem, it started a riot. Because the, the Pharisees said, hey, look it, there's Paul, and he's with a Gentile. He must have taken the Gentile into the court, so let's all arrest him. Paul said, look it, you, they can't use me as an excuse. If I am still preaching circumcision, then why are these people persecuting me? Inconsistent with that. I'm not. And so Paul closes this section really with a pronouncement of judgment, a severe judgment on those that were hindering the work of God. Where he says in verse 12, I wish that those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves. I love Paul. Paul <laughs> Paul's an amazing guy. and it, it, When you study this, you can really get Paul's sense of humor. When Paul closes this out, and, and he's a little guy with an attitude. One translator translated this, this verse as this. Tell those who are disturbing you, I would like to see the knife slip. West, in his word studies, translates this, sentence, this verse as this. I didn't write it, West did. A little PG, but okay. These people that are disturbing you by insisting on circumcision, I would that they would make a thorough work of it in their own case and instead of merely amputating foreskin, would castrate themselves as heathen priests do. <laughs> you want to be circumcised? Okay, then go all the way. I wish they just would. His point is this. If they really believe circumcision is that powerful by cutting off a little bit of skin, how much more powerful is it if you cut everything off? That's Paul. Not messing around. He goes on to the next section of the letter, this latter section. And really brings in the application for the Gentiles that they have to make a decision. How are you going to be led? Are you going to be led by the flesh or are you going to be led by the Spirit? And really, we have to make that determination. How are we going to walk? Are we going to walk in this world being led by our flesh or are we going to be led by the Spirit? And now, I know we vacillate and we struggle and we wrestle. That is part of our human spiritual nature and the tensions that are there. But when you make a determination to go one way or the other, it's super dangerous. So how do we know what to do? Paul starts out with this. Here is the foundation. Instead of legalism being your law that guides you, 
Let love be your law. Instead of trying to obey all the ten, just obey the one. Look at verses 13 to 15. He says this, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So what does Paul say now? Well, up until now, he's been addressing this Mosaic law that's been pushed on these Gentiles. And he said, okay, we're not going to do that. Whenever you remove something, you've got to replace it. So what does Paul replace it with? The law of love. And, and this law of love, he follows really what Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 39. He says, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you remember in context, that's the rich young ruler that went to him and said, what must I do to inherit? And he says, I've done all these laws. And he says, okay, now do this. Love God, love others. I think it's written on our wall outside. Why? Because it's the law of love. Within this, it's the driving force, it's the calling. And he says, and you were called, this divine calling. God has called you to freedom. Freedom to do what? Freedom to love. You are free to love one another with this purpose. You're free to live a, a, a life with a moral and an ethic that's based on love. Super easy. I can save... A lot of counseling time. When people come in, they say, Carrie, what do I need to do? What do you think my answer is going to be? Just love. But my husband, you don't understand. Love him. But my wife, she's making me nuts. Love him. But my kids, I want to put them in a closet. Lovingly put them in the closet. Kidding. But love, my neighbor is making me crazy, my boss, or whatever it is. You are called to freedom, and the call to freedom is free to love. You're given this opportunity. The word opportunity in Greek is a forme. It's a cool word because it means springboard. It literally means the launching pad. You are given the opportunity, the springboard. This is the basis by which you move. To love. It's the base of action. It's the foundation for, for everything that you do. It's this gift of freedom. And, and Paul, in his libertarian view, says you have this freedom to love. You have an obligation to love. Why? Because God's loved you that way. Within this. And, and Paul wanted the church to understand, I'm not against the law. It's not willy-nilly, but it's just one law, the law of love. So everything that you do and everything you say runs through the filter of love. Everything. Is it loving? Is it kind? And it's this guidance. Do we need laws? Sure. Because if we didn't have one standard, everybody would do whatever felt right. Right? And, and God knows we're a bunch of knuckleheads, so he says, I'm going to make it easy for you. You got one job, love. Can you remember one rule, love? 
He makes it easy within this. And we love because God is love. We love from that foundation. And, and within this, it, it's not according to the flesh. We, we, we love according to the Spirit. And this whole law is fulfilled. We don't, give, we don't turn our freedom into an opportunity for the flesh to live according to the flesh, but according to this law of love, this, this new ethic. And it's not self-love, but it's this, the love for others. And he says here, to love your neighbor. Okay? If I had a junior higher in here, he'd give me the smart aleck answer or question. Okay, Pastor Kerry, who's my neighbor? Well, you know, Jesus answered that. In the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, 29-37. Who's my neighbor? And in that, the answer is, your neighbor is anyone who has a need or needs to be loved. That's your neighbor. Whoever has a need or needs to be loved. That's your neighbor. Even if they're a different race or a different gender or a different social status or they look different than me. Yeah. If they have a need or they need to be loved, that's your neighbor. Hmm. How many people in the world do you think today needs to be loved? A lot. A lot. They don't need to be condemned because their heart already condemns them. What they need is love. And, and so in this, Paul contrasts that against the world system in verse 15 because he says what they're getting in the world is they're biting one another, devouring one another. Take care that you're not consumed by one another. They don't need you biting and devouring one another. Unfortunately, the Christian church does that, don't we? We, we, we bite each other, we devour one another, we, we treat each other poorly. Have you ever heard the phrase, dog-eat-dog? Dog? I love the George of the Jungle thing. When, when he says, it's a dog-eat-dog dog world, and George goes, dog-eat-dog? Dog? It really means, that, and, and it came from an old proverb that says, dogs don't eat other dogs. But they shortened it and said, dog eat dog. And it really means that these wild animals attack one another and the strongest survives. And isn't that the world's structure and standard? And, and we, we don't need to fall into that. So how do we get through it? How do we, how do we love? How do we love the people that in, in our mind are not very lovable? The only way you can do it is walk in the Spirit. That's the only way you can do it. If it's left to your flesh, it's not going to happen. So we have to walk in the Spirit. As Paul says, verses 16 to 18, he says, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition one another, in that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So we walk in the, in, in the Spirit. Now the problem is, man's dilemma is, how do we walk in the love when our flesh is so strong? And the answer is, you have to change the inspiration in your life. What inspires you? If, if you're inspired by self-achievement or selfish desires... 
You're going to fail. You're not going to love unconditionally. Why? Because I'm only going to love you as much as it makes me feel good. But if I walk in the Spirit, I can love unconditionally within that. The idea of walking is how you conduct yourself in this journey. It's, it's actually a present active imperative. It's a command. Walk in the Spirit. Not a choice. Walk in the Spirit. It's a command with a promise, though. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. You say, well, wait a minute, Carrie. Are you saying that I can actually live my life and not sin? The answer is absolutely yes. How does that happen? Because when I'm conducting my life as a Spirit-led life, I will not sin. Why? Because the Spirit is opposite of the flesh and opposite of the sin. You follow? If I'm inspired by the Holy Spirit, I can't sin because the Holy Spirit is not going to lead me into sin or allow me to sin. So if I'm only influenced by the Holy Spirit in this journey, I will not sin. So, wait a minute, then how do I sin? When I stop walking in the Spirit. When I drop back into my flesh. That's when I fall back into sin. Could you imagine having the conversation in a prayer where you're praying, Holy Spirit, please empower my life to go get completely obliterated and drunk right now? Would that happen? No. It wouldn't happen. Holy Spirit, help me right now to hate this person with every ounce of my being. No. It doesn't happen. Why? Because the behavior doesn't match the inspiration. Holy Spirit, help me to love them. Holy Spirit, help me to resist this temptation of the flesh. When you go to God first, you will keep yourself in a place of not falling into sin and walking or conducting your life in that place. In fact, it's interesting because the way it reads in the original language, it says this, you might not complete the desire of the flesh. The word is tetelestai. If you walk in the Spirit, it literally says that you might not complete the desire of the flesh. Oh, wait a minute. That puts a turn on it. Because what does that mean? If I start heading in a direction towards my flesh, and I say, God, I need your help now, and I turn my face to the Spirit of God, then I will not complete that action because the Spirit pulls me out of it. Powerful. In fact, four times... Paul in this section will use how we should conduct ourselves. Verse 16, walk in the Spirit. Verse 18, led by the Spirit. Verse 25, live by the Spirit. Verse 25 also, follow the Spirit. Literally, follow the steps of the Spirit. That makes it possible for the Christ follower to be led by the Spirit of God and overpower the flesh. I can save a whole lot of people a lot of time in going through rehab, if they can grab this concept, God will lead me out of the desires of the flesh. The Spirit will empower me to be out of this, this 
burden of my flesh. Because they exist in opposite to each other, the spirit and the flesh. Again, as Paul says in, in Romans 7, 7 and 25, they're always at war. I am sorry, as long as we remain in this body, there will be conflict in your life. It'll happen. That's just the way it is. We're stuck in this body of flesh. And there's no, there's no, way, no way to get out of it. But again, how do we have spiritual victory? How do we gain ground? We follow the Spirit. And verse 18, he goes on, and he says, But if you are led by the Spirit, then you're not under the law. Why? Because you're under the law of love and you're free. You're free. The quickest way to lose ground, though, is to become complacent or to compromise. To say, I'm strong. I can handle it. For those of you, like myself, that are recovering addicts, What's the worst thing that you could ever say in your sobriety? I can just have one. I can just have one. That is the worst thing that you could ever say. Because what are you doing? You're adding back. And you can't go back. Finally, as Paul says to the Galatians, they're led by the Spirit in this third class condition. You're not under the law. You're not under the moral law because you're under the law of love, God's love. So how do I know what to stay away from and what to do? That's how he ends this. He gives this list. Verses 19 to 21, he gives the works of the flesh. And he says this. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sexuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and the things like these, which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Underline that. Will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Those that practice such things. He gives a detailed but not all-inclusive list of the, of the fleshly actions, the human nature, the works. It's interesting, when you compare this against the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. Works is plural... Fruit is singular. Works is the outcome of energy that is exerted. Fruit is the product of life within that. We get to work at sinning and within this. We expend energy. Jesus gives a similar account in Mark 7. We're not going to go into super detail on all of these, but they're categorized in... in Four categories. The first one is sensual passions. Immorality, impurity, sensuality. That word um, immorality is pornea. Where do you think we get our word or what's used for pornea? It's what? Pornography. For sure. So everything that is sensually driven within that. The second category is the false spirituality. The idolatry and sorcery. Just two in there. It's interesting because the word sorcery there is pharmakia, where we get our word pharmacy from, or drugs within that. And it was very common for people to use drugs in the practice of idolatry at that time. It was a common term also, which I learned today and never knew before, but when I was studying the Didache, which is the disciples' basically uh, function rule book, 
that they put together for the early church. It was the first set of order of things to do. You find in the Didache, uh, chapter 2, section 2, this section. It says, pharmakia was a common term for abortion-inducing drugs is borne out by its reoccurrence in the earlier Christian writings. Thus, the Didache includes the following list of negative imperatives. Christians were expected to obey. In other words, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not corrupt boys. Interesting. You shall not fornicate, you shall not steal, you shall not make magic, you shall not practice medicines, pharmakia, you shall not slay the child by abortions. You shall not kill what is generated, and you shall not desire your neighbor's wife. That's in the Didache. That's first generation church. Amazing. It gives a whole different realm of what Paul was dealing with in the culture at that time, that the disciples would have to write the Didache in order to say to the new Christians, you don't get to do this anymore. Amazing to think about that. Other, th other sins. It was the sins against others. Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envies. Not being loving to one another. And then the fourth category, self-indulgence. Drunkenness and carousing. Now, drunkenness we don't necessarily have to do a whole lot with. We know about it. Ephesians 5.18, Paul would write to the church in Ephesus, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We still have the same thing that's going on today, but alcohol abuse was part of cultic worship at the time. So much so that in Corinth, people were going to the Lord's Supper, and they were getting lit at the Lord's Supper and drunk, and they were practicing communion while they were drunk. 1 Corinthians 11.21 For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. There were gluttonous and drunkards. Carousing. Carousing is the word komia, or komoi, and it literally means drunken parties or orgies within that. That's what was going on. And he said... Those that practice this lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God. Period. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. But for the believer, then what do we have? We have the fruit of the Spirit. And again, many of you have studied it. In verse 22 to 26, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. And so he gives this fruit. Now, nine grace gifts, one source, the Spirit of God as he comes out. Love, joy, and peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, general control. And all of these represent, in order, how the believer should live. Have you ever looked at and figured out why there was nine? But when you look a little bit deeper, it's actually three sets of three. What does the number three remind you of? Trinity. The Trinity. And when we take a look at this love, joy, and peace, that is, the, that is how the love of God is produced within our life. Patience, kindness, and goodness. That's how we relate to one another. Faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. 
That's how we control our inner inhibitions and our, our inner men within us. It's structured in such a way of a triad. And it all comes from love. And the Spirit-led life is based off of true freedom. That's why there is no law against it. If you walk in the Spirit, there is no law against you. Because you're led by the law of the Spirit. And then he says, Now those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. And if we walk in the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. In other words, the end of it, he says, if we are born by the Spirit, literally verse 25, then let us walk by the Spirit. In other words, what should we do? Live what you are, children of God. How should we live? By the Spirit of God. What's the number one rule? Love. Pretty simple. Can you remember one thing? Let love be that foundation. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for this time, and I thank you that we could be here in this place and honor you. And Lord, this, this message that Paul wrote to the church of Galatia is very pertinent for us today. Life gets very messy and very complicated very fast. Because we listen to all the voices and all the things that are going on around us. And I love that you make it simple. Love. And how do we love? The Spirit's going to show us. And if we're led by the Spirit, then we can love with the love of God. And everything else is from that springboard is a demonstration of that love. Lord, help us to love as, in the same manner that you've loved us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and we'll close. All my words fall short I've got nothing new how could I express all my gratitude? I could sing these songs as I often do. But every song must end and you never do. So I'll throw up my praise you again and again cause all that I have is a hallelujah hallelujah and I know it's not much but I'm nothing else fit for a king except for a heart singing
know it's not much, but I'm nothing else fit for a king, except for a heart singing hallelujah, hallelujah. Well, as you sing hallelujah, we just heard tonight from God's word. Do it all in love. Have a blessed rest of your week. See you on Sunday. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.